This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression. And this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back to the Mom and Mind podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On our episode today, we are joined by Kate Stakem. She is a licensed clinical social worker and mother of two with lived experience of perinatal trauma, depression, and anxiety. Kate is talking about her experience of her daughter, Claire, being diagnosed with a congenital diaphragmatic hernia at 36 weeks gestation and how the trauma of that diagnosis impacted her and the subsequent pregnancy and traumatic birth that followed, let alone the six weeks that followed Claire's birth. She shares with us what her experience was like in those weeks before and after delivery, as well as what it was like for her husband in part, experiencing the trauma related to her daughter's diagnosis while in utero, then enduring a birth that was traumatizing and the following weeks after delivery, which also brought their own traumas. She is sharing this in part to one, let people know that people aren't alone when they find out that their child has a diagnosis in utero and also to give hope to people and give them something to hold on to so that they know that they can get through something like this, even though it seems impossible. For those of you who have experienced a congenital abnormality in utero or even learned of a diagnosis after delivery, just gauge for yourself if listening to the details of Kate's experience is something that you're ready for, or if you'd like to come back at another time. And although Kate's story and Claire's story are really difficult and in some ways difficult to hear, as we know from stories like hers and stories on this podcast, the more that we know about these things, know that they can happen and understand that people do make it through and get to the other side and find some sort of healing, the better off we all are because it can be really hard when times are difficult to even fathom how you're going to get through something. And Kate did. And I'm so glad she came to share this with us. So let's meet Kate. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here today. 
I'm grateful to you that you're coming on to share your experience, you know, and other people will probably know that this, these kinds of things are not talked about enough people's challenges and what it really feels like and is like to deal with things like this. So yeah, please do um, start wherever you'd like with your story. Okay, sure. So thank you so much. So I got pregnant with my first child, my daughter, Claire. And throughout the pregnancy, things were pretty good. I was feeling honestly, like overall great. Like I was having the glow that people Mm -hmm. say you experience. Nothing was going wrong. Even the aches and pains weren't there. I went in to the diabetic screening. So I got, you know, all the way there, which is what usually around 28 to 32 weeks pregnant. And I did the one hour test and that didn't go so well. So they had me come back for the fun three hour. And through that process, they noticed that I had a huge hypoglycemic episode on the third round. So I did not do well with the Mm -hmm. three hour. I wasn't diagnosed a officially with gestational diabetes, but the endocrinologist said it was sort of up to me whether I want to be followed by her or not. And I did agree to this. So this was, you know, a whole other journey that I didn't plan, of course, but I was testing four times per day and doing all that good stuff. It was diet controls. We were, we were right along on track. Baby was developing fine. I had my anatomy scan. I didn't mention that at 28 weeks and things looked great. Everything or 20. 20 weeks, things looked great, everything was fine. And there was no need for for further testing at that time. However, because I had screened in for blood sugar level issues, this is kind of how I phrase it, they did want to watch baby's growth, right? So naturally, I was having a little bit more frequent ultrasounds. So anyways, pregnancy was going me and my husband were super excited getting everything ready. I had my baby shower. However, I will say mama's instincts are usually right. And a big part of my journey is really listening in and responding to that. So ever since I got pregnant with my daughter, things just didn't feel right. So I had anxiety before I've had depression before. So it was really I feel like I had all the tools in my toolbox for for managing that. But there was this gut instinct that something is not Right. So the diabetes came up and I'm like, oh, this must be it. Like, it's just that this is happening, right? There's the blood sugar. So anyways, I, and everybody was like, everything's fine, Kate, right? Of course I had wonderful support. So flash forward to 36 weeks and we go in for the last growth scan to just see like for induction, what are we doing here? And my husband, thankfully it was a Friday, my husband was able to come in. And the tech was having a really hard time finding my daughter's the fetal heartbeat and positioning me in such a way to really look at everything. And so I remember it was like, turn here, turn there, right? All of the the uncomfortableness at 36 weeks, the discomfort. And she said, you know, I have to step out of the room and I'm just going to go chat with one of my colleagues. And even then me and my husband are like, okay, like things are okay. Like this, it's just that you're, you know, she said it's harder to get the results at this time. And, you know, cause you're bigger and there's less amniotic fluid in start. So 
And then somebody else comes in and she said, okay, again, I need you to lie on your side. And we're like, right. Oh boy. And she paused and she looked at us and she said, so the baby's heart is on the other side of her chest. And immediately, right, you're like, white, like, what are you talking about? Right. And looking back, I'm like, okay, so we can fix that. Like, I know, I, I don't know. I know some people are born literally anatomically split, like that happens to be it, right? And she said, we don't know what this is. This could be a tumor in the lung mass, right? It could be a lung mass in your child, or it could be a congenital diaphragmatic hernia. And we go, what the heck? What, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> what is a congenital diaphragmatic hernia? And she says, so what we're going to do is we're just going to get all the information you need. We need you to go home and we're going to try to get you an appointment. And we're very lucky we're in Boston. We're going to try to get you an appointment at Boston Children's Hospital, like right now to go to. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting there, we're waiting for the call. We get into the car and we're just like, what is that? Right. I'm calling my mom. I'm calling like all of my support systems. They think there's something with the, with me, like, okay, it must be hypertension or you're, you know, maybe you're going into early labor. We're coming. And I'm like, no, something's wrong with the baby. And we don't know what this is like, even then, right. We don't know. So I get a call back. My doctor's office was very, I would say like they were very responsive and I get a call back and they say, we are so sorry, but they can't take you today. But we got you appointment for Monday. So we're sitting there. That's a fr- yes. You're like, it's writing. Yes. That's a million yes. years away. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yes. And somebody should be calling you from children's to go over some of the possibilities. So again, right. And I'm predisposed to anxiety. My anxiety is going through the roof yeah. of I mean, all the things. Is my child going to survive? What even is this treatable? Is this not treatable? Do I have to be induced? Am I going into all of the things, right? That that moms in general think about all of the unknown and then this. So we were very, very lucky that there at Boston Children's Hospital, there is a congenital diaphragmatic hernia clinic. So at this time, it was likely that- so specific. So specific. To have a, a whole clinic for that. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. But great. And yeah. yes. And I didn't even mention we live eight minutes at the time. We lived eight minutes to Ch- Boston Children's Hospital. So like never in our wildest dreams did we think like we'd have to access this yeah. right at so soon. Yeah. However, it was there. So again, thanking our blessings yet still, of course, the unknown. So at this time, they were like, I'm pretty sure we reviewed your scans and we are pretty sure that this is a congenital diaphragmatic hernia. And we get a call from one of their absolutely amazing nurses. She's like one of their educational nurses that calls just to talk to parents who are in this exact same position of saying, what is happening to me? What is this? I've never even heard of this, right? The acronym is CDH. So now it's just CDH. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so she goes through all the education. She calls me. She says, how are you feeling? She gives me a space to talk and to cry, right? Mm-hmm. To just lay it all out there. And I felt so incredibly Again, just grateful for that space. And she said, first and foremost, do not Google anything. And so, of course, I'm sitting there like, well, I already have. It's been a year since I was waiting. Yes, for I did on the car ride home when my yeah. husband was driving the car, right? So she says, we are here for you, right? This, we specialize in this. 
this is incredibly rare, yet we see it all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that psychotomy, like you've never heard of this, yet this is our everyday life. And we're going to get you in on Monday, you're going to do a ton of scans, and we're going to make a plan. Mm -hmm. But everything stopped then, right? Mm -hmm. All of the celebrations, like I always think about even my nursery wasn't complete. It was 36 weeks. My rock, like I hadn't even gotten a rocking chair, I remember. And that weekend, my parents came up and I remember my mom saying, we've got to get the rocking chair. We've got to get the rocking chair. And I I have chills as I say this, because it was a symbol of, right, what is to come and what we hope will be. Mm -hmm. And I just, I remember like, I can't, that I can't think about it. I just can't even go there. And I believe we did that weekend. We did eventually. But that weekend, there was a lot of grief. There was a lot of anger. There was trying to fix things, something that I can't fix. Right? Yeah. Right. So you're just at this point, just waiting. Yeah. You have a little bit of information, a little bit of Mm -hmm. a direction. But really, everything else is kind of unknown. Yep. And I feel this is the piece that is not talked enough about. It's not talked about enough, right? Mm -hmm. That there's many birthing parents and partners that receive these absolutely life-altering diagnoses, right, in utero and feel powerless. That is just the word. I mean, I, I remember going to the it's like the depths of my soul to just ask the whys during this weekend of why is this happening? Did I do something? The guilt, the shame of being the mother in this situation, being the birthing parent in the situation of was it something I ate? Was it something I did? Right? Was it medications that I took? All of the questions. And I remember one of the most visceral feelings was I just want to fix her. And I remember the shame around that because, you know, she's perfect. She's my child, but I just want to fix her. I just want to know that she is okay and that she's going to survive this. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. And still, you're just kind of waiting. There's not... There's nothing you can do. That powerlessness 
yeah. must just be ever present. Yes. And I know there, you know, it, it's funny. I think back on like 36 weeks, I went three weeks. I'll get to that where I was induced at 39, but it's like, I went three weeks and some moms go months, right. You know, at the um, anatomy scan, that's just when this is usually diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So I just can't fathom the joy that's taken from you, right. The, or that I felt taken, you know, that it was taken from me of not Mm -hmm. being able to enjoy those last moments carrying my daughter. So we show up on Monday, we get to Boston Children's, it's a whole day of appointments, including an MRI. So I'll never forget that. So I'm 36 weeks, and I'm going in to a children's hospital going into a child's MRI. So it's this little tiny. (laughs) So the mom, here's a whole other thing, right? You have to get it done because it's for your child, but you're at a children's hospital. So you're going into facilities for children. So even the MRI is tinier and I'm 36 weeks and they're like, this is going to be really uncomfortable because you have to sit here for like an hour, right? When you're so uncomfortable and lying there and it's incredible what they can see. Like we still have the MRI scans of seeing her little body inside mine and Mm -hmm. it's, it's incredible, but. So we go through that, we go through cardiac testing. And so to describe her heart, yes. So describe a congenital diaphragmatic hernia is when there's an opening in the diaphragm and a lot, if not all of the organs from the bottom, okay, creep up into the chest cavity, impacting lung development. So many of these babies aren't born with really any lung capacity whatsoever. My daughter had a quarter of her left lung that was still there, like that had been enlarged. Because what happens in utero is our lungs expand, the sacs get bigger, all of those things, right? But her bowels were all the way up here. Mm -hmm. So this is what the MRI showed that, okay, it's bowels, it's not any, sometimes it's liver, sometimes it's the stomach, spleen, everything is up there. And then they want to look at the heart because, of course, the heart's going to be impacted if the lungs are impacted. And we went through all of this. And then at the end of the day, this is a very long day. At the end of the day, they sit down with you and really create your birth plan slash post-delivery plan for your daughter, for your child. And they try to give their best prognosis. That doesn't, you know, they try to say, I think this is good, you know, where I think you might be here for three-ish weeks. I remember they said this is more mild because her opening was less large, meaning only the bowels went up, right? All of this medical stuff too that we're having to really wrap our head around and be informed about. All of a sudden. All of a sudden, not knowing any of this. Yeah. Yes. So we made a plan. We talked with maternal fetal medicine, all of the specialists also for me and made a plan for an induction at 39 weeks because with CDH you're at risk for stillbirth. They do want to make sure that their lungs have basically what they say is they're safe inside. They're the safest they are inside of you, right? It's the scary part when they exit. So, and how, right? So you can just think about that, like the safety inside of you. And then once they're out, yeah, once they're a bird, it's scarier. So we made that plan and 39 weeks rolls around and we're headed into the induction. 
And we pull out, I always like to say, it's like you pull out all of the induction strategies, especially when it's your first born and you're only 39 weeks or you're not even full, not even at 40 weeks yet, or let alone 41 and two. And so I had an app, unfortunately, I had a really horrible birth experience because the medical interventions just needed to be very invasive Mm. because my daughter was in trouble. Right. So um, I also suffered birth trauma just from the constant poking, prodding, intervention, all of the checking, Mm -hmm. you know, her safety being at risk, not thankfully not mine. However, so we did it all. Like, I won't get into the details, but we really, you know, pulled, pulled out all the things. And I, all of the interventions, all of the things for induction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like the fully, you know, the fully, the cervidil, the side attack, the, the, yeah, all of it. And the checks were so frequent because they're like, we got to get this baby out. So even the vaginal checks to me became traumatizing. We had to use GAT, the is it nitrous or nitric for moms? I always forget the difference, but one of the two where it's just helps you a little bit relax into it. For th- I had to do that for a vaginal check because it got so bad that my body was just not allowing anything anymore. It was mm-hmm. like, I'm not, mm-hmm. no, nope, I'm not here. I'm not doing this anymore. And I just yeah. shut down. So after all this, they were working with me and finally get to the pushing stage after I think I was like 48 hour. It was like a two day, two and a half day process. So long. Yeah. My 30th birthday, I would say I like I was 30 and I'm like, yeah, I celebrated like during my induction. Yes. Yes. Within the hospital. It's so oh, funny. No. I was like, this is typical my daughter, though. She's such a spitfire. I'm like, you made, you totally made that happen, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And so, so this is when, like, the real prep work. I mean, of course, they're prepping. Children's is waiting for her, like, for two days. And I know that. So they're all, like, checking in. Like, her surgeon, who we love so much, would be coming in, checking on us. How are you doing? I'm like, still here. Still on here. She's not here yet. Mm-hmm. They're all waiting, like, you know eagerly. And uh, so I finally get to pushing stage and I pushed for four hours. I ended up with a high fever. So I had the infection. It was like 104.5. Yes, because of all the checking and all again, we needed to but I couldn't put like I literally lost of course I could my energy I I remember passing out in between pushes because I was so feverish. Yeah. And so they said, all right, Kate, we're going to, we got to prep for, we're going to prep the OR. That's the other thing is because I needed like 25 people in the room for the birth because she needed an entire NICU team. And then I need, again, my own team mm-hmm. that we need to even vaginal births need to be in the OR because there's not a room big enough. So they're waiting and it, she's like, we're prepping for a section, but I think you can do this. We're going to have to use a vacuum. That was another intervention. So she's like, you know, we just got to get just enough there for me to use it. And I was like, okay, like I'm, I'm at empty at this you point, right? Energy. 
absolutely nothing left. And I finally got her there. And right at that point, they pushed, they moved me into the OR. Now, I didn't even mention this. I was so lucky because this was prior to COVID. It was in 2019, March of 2019. And so my mom could be there and my husband. Mm. So this was like such a blessing. And I always think of all those CDH parents that went through this during COVID. Yeah. So we were, we were in the OR and she you know, I won't go into too much, but we, she was delivered. And then um, unfortunately, CH babies are immediately intubated. So like right from mom into the, onto the NICU team and they're like resuscitating and intubating. This is part and of the I'm, plan that you already knew about? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yep. So this is all like, you can't touch them. Can't really quite frankly, can't look at it. I looked at her and it was terrifying. So then I looked away because they're not healthy. Like immediately they can't breathe, right? So she was white and not healthy and not scary, quite, you know, scary. And so she's off in the hands of these these professionals that I don't know. And my mom stays with me. And then my husband and the NICU team take her and her like the little it's like rolling, like a rolling, you know, bed sort of incubator and roll her over the bridge into Boston Children's. So that's how that works. Mm. Then she's there. Then I'm still here, right? Getting stitched up. I bet at a second degree from the vacuum and stitched up and all of the things that then moms do, right? All of the like mm-hmm. after stuff without your own baby yeah. there. Yeah. So at this point it's you your mom mm-hmm. and then your team of people yes yes and so we go into the post like typical you know the regular postpartum i'm feeling okay <laughs> i mean i'm feeling physically exhausted number one right absolutely it was 2 a.m too 2 a.m when she was born so i'm exhausted we're, we're doing like all that I get transferred down to the postpartum floor again, like without my baby, my mom's there. And I have my husband basically calling me like with life altering decisions. So what, <laughs> so I'm on the phone, I'm like in the bed. Right. And I'm talking to my husband on my, on my cell phone, exhausted. And he's like, this is happening. I don't know what. To-. So what we found out, we always knew this was going to be a rough ride, right? That she was going to be intubated. But during the time from post-birth intubation at into children's getting safe and stable, her lung, her good lung collapsed. So her only lung, mm-hmm. and it was a quarter, collapsed and was no longer functioning. So she was, oh yes. Yeah. So this is, yep. your husband is like experiencing this as it's happening. Yes. yes. Okay. Right. Yes. Right in there with like, right. The emergency team as they're right. resuscitating. I don't know what they did like, but she yeah. de it, right? She so awfulness, all that trauma, all that trauma that my husband also physically seeing this and then our plan changing of, okay, so this is worse Then remember the three weeks that now doubles. And it's like, this is, yeah, you're not going home in three weeks. Like if, again, if she makes it, that's the thing about NICU life. And I feel like, especially with CDH life is I remember the doctors always saying, and it was probably, it was helpful, but it was hard to hear that every second things can change. So your hyper vigilance right. is constant. 
you are bearing for impact at all times. Like even in the good times, you are worrying that she will not survive. They tell you this ahead of time. Uh And the plan on a good day is what? Three-ish weeks in the NICU and then home. Okay. Without surgical intervention? So they always still need surgery. Okay. I didn't even mention that. So you plan for surgery usually as soon as they are stable Mm. because you need to pull all of the stuff down, Mm -hmm. sew up the hernia Mm -hmm. or block it. Sometimes we use mesh. We in the CDH community, it's called, it's like a mesh to then allow hopefully the lungs to open at some point, right? For her, it was like, I think it's like the first two years of her life, her lungs were still opening and they're still compromised. So at that point, it's like surgery is going to be delayed, of course, because now she's in very unstable condition and we're just going to, every second we're watching her. And it's like, I haven't even seen her. Just so I understand, (laughs) you're going into this with best case scenario, delivery, Mm -hmm. NICU, stability, surgery, recovery, home in three weeks. Yes. Yes. That seems fast, but okay. Yes. Okay. If if, if they can do it, cool. (laughs) Right. Okay. So then your husband is hearing all of this stuff about the lung collapse and it's going to be at least double this yeah. now. Yeah. And they are still working to just get her stable. Safe. Safe. Yeah. Stable. Yeah. And then I'm still like recovering, right? So that I'm still recovering mm-hmm. and I have the antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So I have to be attached. I felt like this was like I was in prison, right? Mm-hmm. Because I had to be attached for the IV. I don't even remember. I think it was twice a day. You might like twice or three times a day for the antibiotics. So I couldn't leave to go see her whenever I wanted to or to stay with her. I have to, you know, I'm still in postpartum. (laughs) Like I have my team and they were so good. Like I remember they did let me, like I would, I took a wheelchair over to see her once I was able to, which was nice to just see her, but feeling like I was still being tied. And then my husband having to do that independently was awful. It's just, yeah. So he was pretty much there at the NICU and... You guys are communicating by phone and maybe seeing each other sometimes. Yes. Right. (laughs) So fun. So fun. (laughs) Um, I'm glad you have a a good sense of humor because it's crazy. Yeah, it is. It's a lot. Okay. So. So she is such a fighter. Number one, I haven't even talked about my daughter yet, but she is the epitome of a fighter. Mm -hmm. And she defies all odds. I mean, she really is such a, to this day, she defies all odds. So she just pushed through in a last minute sort of effort before ECMO. I don't know if you've heard of ECMO, but it's basically like a machine that you hook up to somebody to keep their body alive when there, nothing is happening. So just to keep oxygenated. So a lot of CDH babies get hooked up to ECMO and it's through, I'm like, don't want to get graphic, but it's through like the jugular, it bypass, it like just moves the blood and then oxygenates. That's basically the only, it's like a rest and digest for the body. Mm. Okay. And we were prepared, like this could happen, but it's, of course, there's so many side effects, there's infection risk, there's so much with ECMO. So in a last ditch effort, and this is where I get so confused, they gave her nitric or nitrous oxide. I always, the moms get one and then the babies get, I always forget, but ICU uses one and then the 
the labor and delivery floor uses the other and it worked and it like really showed a lot of success with her. They weren't, you know, they were so thrilled with that because it doesn't always. And she was able, like we were in an okay place, okay place at that point. And at this point, I didn't even mention too, I'm pumping. So at that point I was like, I'm pumping. I'm attached to the pump. I'm like, right. I'm like constantly and I'm attached to something. And I feel like it was the only thing. And I remember thinking this is the only thing I can give her. And so it was like, that was my purpose. That was my drive. I'm like, okay, you say it can do this eight to 10 times a day. I'm going to do this eight to 10 times a day. And I did it and I did it. And even then, like when she was intubated, I remember they would dip like the colostrum and put it like on her lips, her dry lip, just because she can't, there's nothing. It was just hydration at that point, right? She was getting IV. So no nutrition, nothing like that. So Again, ups and downs. I was pumping. She was intubated like for around two weeks. She stayed and we had one, they didn't exactly extubate, but they were ready to extubate and then still wasn't ready. So that was like one of the hardest things was just the waiting period and she would get infections. We wouldn't know why, Mm -hmm. you know, she had, she stopped breathing in the middle of like times and they didn't know why. So there's just so many questions. Right. Right. So, um, again, like, so how long are, were you in postpartum recovery? So I think it was three days, like your typical two nights, three days. Uh Okay. And then after that, I mean, during that time when you can, you, go to see her. Mm -hmm. And after that, what happens? You live in the NICU now? Um, Yes. So there's, and this is the other thing I didn't say. She's, I call it the NICU because that's how people understand it. But because she had surgery, oh, I didn't go over that. Mm -hmm. Because she had surgery, she was in the medical surgical ICU. Mm -hmm. So this is all ages. Mm-hmm. And only the CDH babies out of the babies are there because then there's heart ICUs like for the cardiac for the CHD years, but all only in that in the Masiku, it's the CDHers. So there's already that kind of isolation, mm-hmm. right? Of like, mm-hmm. who am I here? I'm not yeah. amongst like other parents going through this. Right. We did have one little bay to sleep in in that room. So only one of us could stay. And this to me, was just the absolute worst part of the, I mean, it's all bad, but not being able to both be there at the same time overnight and just the constant switching of, it's like switching of the guards, yeah. right? Like who's going in today, who's going home or who's, they had a dorm type of room for parents that you could stay in if things were really critical. So we had that at the beginning where one of us could stay in the bay and then the other would be upstairs, like in the parent, they had like a parent dorm room type of setup. Mm-hmm. So we had that and we were switching. So surgery, I didn't mention that. So she finally got stabilized and then they're like, okay, there's How a long? pocket of time. How long it was happen? two days. So that was good. You want to get there as soon as possible. And the surgery went well. We were in the absolute best hands. We love our surgeon so much. She is like incredible, incredibly gifted and compassionate in what she does. So that was, she's such an angel. Like I really say that she was so meant to be in our lives and she did a terrific job and we didn't have to use mesh. So she just sewed her right back up, (laughs) which reduces further complications like of reopening. And then it was again, after surgery, it's like go time. It's like, how are we going to 
you know, get these lungs, you know, developed enough? How are we going to extubate? How is she going to feed? How is she going to stay well? And, you know, like I said, she got infections. So it's not like you're out of the woods, basically, even, yeah, Mm post-surgery. So that's where we were. And like I said, it was two weeks that she was intubated. And then usually after that, they're working with you around feeding. She still has oxygen. So oxygen and then NG tube for feeds. And we hadn't even, let's say other thing, we couldn't hold her until like maybe 10 days, 10 to 14 days. Mm-hmm. So already a lot of Dude, just due to like risk of infection or I think or it's fragility. I think it was yeah I think it was just like stability they don't want her to stress uh-huh. like any movement even I remember her being weighed or anything like that anything to risk mm. like she would scream she would cry right and like we couldn't do anything and yes and there's another symbol I always talk about my symbols through my journey the rocking chair being one the other is this hat. So she had this pink feather hat. It was like pink with like little, like <laughs> they just went off and the bay would be behind her, right? So where we would like hang out, we'd be behind her and she would sleep a lot. Obviously she was sedated and a newborn, but all we would see when she would be upset was <laughs> her little hat going. Ding, 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 ding. Mm-hmm. And so it always like, I know it's like so cute, right? It's cute and really sad. But I just remember thinking, like ugh, this hat, right? This reminder, we still have the hat today. And I'm like the the reminder of the time that you didn't have your voice. But I feel like we still that was like her way of communicating. Like we still had this way of, okay, the like the hat's moving, let's go like try to shush her try to calm her else we would have no idea when she's screaming. And oh my gosh, the day of ex- extubation, we're like, so then the day comes when she's finally, hopefully stable enough to be for the breathing to, to be removed. And I remember, even then they say, I just want you to know that this could be put back in, you know, like, there's always this don't get used to anything good. Yes. Yes. Like no celebration. Like where are the situation? Any of this, yeah. right? Any of this. Right. And I truly feel like that day was the, I mean, it was miraculous and one of the most anxiety. I think it was the most anxiety provoking experience through the whole thing. Like I remember me and my husband were, cause they asked you to go in the hallway and we both like could barely stand because we were just so like holding our breaths in anticipation and the second we heard her cry and it's this scratchy every nick you would understand this it's this scratchy like chicken like like it's a dinosaur baby (laughs) sounding noise and it's the absolute best thing that you'll ever hear and she was bright she was pink she was like she looked perfect and it was our first shot I don't know it's the first picture without her without anything at that time yep and your first time really hearing her yes Mm. yeah and she has the loudest voice and she's the loudest (laughs) (laughs) so now yeah and so now we're like Claire do you know that there were times when we couldn't I mean we don't go to that extent but it's just funny because she just loves her voice and uses it all the time she won't stop talking (laughs) yeah So we get at that point, it's again, it's like nurturing, it's making sure that she's growing and figuring out breastfeeding and bottles 
and all of that, like all of the normal struggles that parents go through, but for CDH babies, they're working extra hard. Mm -hmm. Like they're working really hard just to breathe. So feeding and caloric intake, right, is a massive challenge. Yeah. So we worked very closely with dietitians at that point. You get moved to another floor, another unit, and they weigh her all the time. It's very number-based, right? So once again, it's this control, which absolutely is necessary. But as yeah. parents, it's like, well, what are we doing here, right? What, uh-huh. What's our role? What are we what are we doing? I remember to feed her, we'd have to buzz the nurse. So like, even if like if she was hungry, you know, it was like, I can't help you. I have to wait. We have to weigh you. We have to. It's so that's mm-hmm. hard, really hard. The, the, the nurses are monitoring the feeds. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they like have to, right. They have to watch you. If you breastfeed, you have to weigh before and after to make sure she was getting enough volume. And even then she had to be fortified times like a thousand. So I couldn't breastfeed solely. It was just for like my experience and hers, but it was not enough. So I was still pumping and then I would give the milk to them to fortify with formula and then they would come in and prepare the bottle and then we would feed and we would help her. But there was, you know, choking. She's not used to this. So that's, it's hard. And then like the balance between the NG tube and oral feed. So we would do kind of a combination of those two. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Right, because she's, I mean, she's um, still having challenges with breathing. So like feeding and breathing at the same time is exhausting. Yeah, like a chat, impossible. If you can't breathe and feed, right? It's a constant, but that they want her to, of course, orally feed. 
at some point. So you're slowly introducing new things. She still has the oxygen, by the way, for a long time, almost before discharge. We were going to discharge with oxygen, but she was, she rallied and she did well. But that's a long one. I feel like that part of the journey almost feels longer because you're ready. You're not really necessarily hypervigilant as much mm-hmm. as you were in the acute stages, but you just want to be a mom. Like you mm-hmm. just want to be a parent. Yeah. And yet you're still, you know, you're still under the, you're still under the medical care that, that your daughter needs. Um, how long did, uh, was the NICU stay? So she was officially in the hospital for six weeks. Oh, their estimate mm-hmm. was right on. Yeah, they have that down pat. They're like, as many weeks, it's so funny, as many weeks as you're in the ICU, double that, and that's your long. So you'll do, if we were three ICU and then three step down, and it really was quite close in measure, in estimate. So, okay. yep. So how are you doing through this mm-hmm. whole time? Like, mm-hmm. are, are you in survival mode? You Are you mm-hmm. even aware of how you're doing? Like, mm-hmm. what, what happened? I am absolutely in tunnel vision. Like I am in survival mode. I have the best support system yet. They would be checking in and I really couldn't even talk about anything outside of I'm fine. Like I, if it wasn't about, if it wasn't until the end, like I couldn't talk, it was total survival. So it was like, until she's out of here, I can't talk. Right. Like I can't be happy. I can't find any pleasure. I can't take care of myself until she's out of here. So it was total breeze for impact the entire time. Yeah. And I had a therapist. I didn't even say it, but I am a therapist. I believe in therapy. Like I had mentioned, I have anxiety and depression. I have a history of that. So I was like really prepped. And I remember even canceling my therapy appointments mm-hmm. because I just was like, I'm here and in the hospital. Like, I don't want to take a therapy appointment in the hospital. Like it mm-hmm. just, nothing felt right. I just wanted her out. And I was, yeah, tunnel vision. Okay. And then you get the news that you can leave and mm-hmm. you get home. And then how do you feel? Yeah. Then it's like, what do we do now? Right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's extra. At that point, it's like the feeding and she had tremendous GERD. She had really, really bad GERD. So again, it was constantly feeding. I was continuing to be very much in survival mode. So I think that looking back, that's one of the saddest parts to me is we left and she's quote unquote safe. And yet they're still saying for two years, she needs to be extremely careful with germs, with like a common cold could be life threatening. And so it's, oh my gosh, like why can't, right? Like how is, this isn't fair. Right. Like she, we're, we did all this work and now we're here with a newborn at home and we can't, again, there's simples, just like even the simple joys are kind of ripped away from you. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I still don't feel like I was being honest with myself at all. Mm-hmm. And my husband, we were so grateful. He had a long paternity leave and was able to stay home and like support me and, you know, coming home, all three of us together. And I'll never forget, though, I feel like I was actually thinking about work as an escape. I remember thinking, like, I just want normal again. I just want some resemblance of my old life back again, because Mm -hmm. this is terrifying. This isn't fun. My daughter also, to me, was a big trigger. Mm -hmm. This is also, I don't feel talked, you know, about enough that for birth trauma and for a lot of ICU parents, 
your child in and of itself can be triggering. And so for me, my anxiety was so high, I couldn't be alone with her, I couldn't be her primary caregiver, my husband really stepped in to do a lot of that, I had a hard time soothing her I had a hard time holding her. And this went on for a long time, like too long. Even after my husband went back, I stayed home with her and I was doing minimal hours as a therapist at night. So when my husband came home, I would go into work. And so I was with her most of the day. And I remember just feeling trapped. I was like trapped inside of the home. I didn't want her being exposed to anything. Again, of course, then COVID came, but I didn't want her in harm. And she was struggling and she was still an anxious baby. Like she was loud. She was on feeling unsick. She was regulating, right? Her nervous system needed to be regulated. And so she was, it was tough. It was like, I can't go to a coffee shop with her. It's not like a normal baby. She is very, she's uncomfortable a lot of the time. So I was stuck at home. It wasn't until like six months that I called my OB. And I remember saying, I am not well. I'm thinking about leaving. I'm thinking about like driving cross country. Like I just had this feeling of like, I need to leave. And they said, I'm so glad you called. I need you to come. Like wait, we encourage you to come in. You can meet with our nurse practitioner. And I was like, okay. And so I come in and the nurse practitioner, unfortunately wasn't very helpful. She talked to me about med. She didn't ask me any assessment questions. So like, even as a therapist, I'm like, okay, you don't even, not asking me any of these (laughs) And she looked at me and said, I can prescribe you meds. This is where I would send it. Like, what's your pharmacy? And I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready for that. And she's like, she said, what is it about you, mom? Oh, no, she didn't. Oh, yeah, she did. What is it about you moms and meds? She works in a pediatrician's <laughs> office? Yeah. No, it was OB. It OB's was OB MP. Right, yes. OB's office. Oh, my goodness. All right, lady. Yeah. So I'm like, thankfully, again, as a therapist, I'm like, okay, I know better. Like, I was still seeing my therapist too, mind you. And I give it like another three months, miserable. And then I finally call a prescriber. I was like, let this prescriber and I find my way to her. And like, she does a beautiful assessment. Like, I feel heard. I feel listened to. And we did start medication, which I've been on a lot of my life. And it, that was comfortable for me um, because I was hurt, right? Because I was given a choice because I was yeah. given other options. Mm-hmm. And I felt so much better and really upwards from there. Like mm-hmm. things got better. I found help. I understand like the trauma as trauma. I understand what I went through in a whole new light. And she's happy. She's health, health, so healthy. I'm happy and healthy. And yeah, glad. I'm so happy to be here, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's quite a journey. And you said, I mean, we didn't get into it. But there's the whole like, she was about one year old when COVID hit or something yes. like that. So yes. that's its own uh-huh. ball of whatever to deal with. And so how old is she now? She's four, going almost four and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's such a bright light. She is an energizer bunny, we like to say. She is healthy. She still needs, like, she still has pulmonary hypoplasia. So, like, the insides of her lungs are still a little compromised. So, like, through the winter time, she sometimes needs inhalers. And she gets checked at children's once a year. But other than that, she's, like, a healthy and happy child. Loves school, loves learning, loves running around. And 
doing all the things that she should be doing. So she can be active. um, Yes. Like literally run around. Yes. They do a, uh, it's so cute. This winter they'll have her get on like a treadmill and they do as like a toll test to see how is she oxygenating when she's running just because she'll be turning five and like more formal sports. You know, like she tried soccer and sometimes has to take breaks. Like she'll come back and be like, mom, I need a water break. But and like she knows, like she's mm-hmm. just like, I'm tired. I'm like, yeah, of course. That's, yeah, it's mm-hmm. tiring. But as long as like she's comfortable, they're com- like her providers are comfortable and we're comfortable. Um, and hopefully she'll be able to do any and all that she can't think that she wants to do That's in the great. future. That's mm-hmm. great. So great. She's got her healing and, and recovery down and. I assume you're on the same trajectory. Yes, very much so. (laughs) And and can I ask how your husband's doing? Great question. He also is doing well. He found his own way, I feel, right? As we all do. He, but he's gotten there. I would say he's getting there just like I'm getting there. And it's important to just stay in open communication about it. Like I even feel at four years, we now look back and we're talking about it differently than I think, right. Than we had. Um, And I think that's been so healing to just say, look at each other and say, we went through that. Like we went through that. And for both of us to be like, wow. Yeah. Like finally taking the deep breath, Mm -hmm. you know? It feels really good. And just what knowing we had each other's back. I guess what, what helped you get through this? Like looking back mm-hmm. on all of that. So one of my biggest takeaways to such a challenging place in my life is faith and spirituality. I grew up really against faith. I grew up like not really understanding what this all means, right? Like I I was born into a Catholic household, but it wasn't very strict. It was like, go to church if you want to go to church. But one of the biggest takeaways has just been my connection to something else, my connection to feeling connected in any, in all respects. So whether that be through other people, whether that be through God, spirit, whatever, you know, whatever terms you want to use, really having faith that you are not alone and that also that your intuition and your gut, you know, your gut is there for you as a compass, Mm -hmm. as a guiding light along the path. As I said, it was like, there were so many things that helped me and also understanding looking back. Oh my goodness. I had some of those, like I had that inner knowing, but I couldn't describe it. But that was almost comforting after being like, okay, well, I know this is going to be okay. I know I'm going to be okay. Just trusting. It's like the deep surrender when you're in the darkest of places, just knowing that you're not alone, you're supported, you're connected. And first and foremost, like you have yourself, right? You have you, you have your own soul, your own spirit, your own sense of self that really guides you in the hardest of moments. And it's always there. And it's always communicating, we just have to pause and listen. Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest thing in trauma, right? I mean, I wasn't necessarily I, ha- I remember I had times where I'd be like, Oh, wow, that's really cool. Or like, okay, I recognize that I can feel that but that is so hard to do when your nervous system is firing and your mind is in a whole different place. You're not feeling centered. You're not feeling grounded and you're certainly not feeling connected. 
So that's been something I just, I am religious about is connecting, meditating, finding that solace, like within my own self Mm -hmm. and listening, listening to me above all Mm -hmm. is a huge takeaway from this. Yeah. And it sounds like you, you could get like glimpses of that here and there and like hold on to it in parts, Mm -hmm. even if you couldn't really like sit into it fully. So obviously you've been through it um this and this is a lot a lot nobody's like ready for this <laughs> you just go through it if and when it happens for other people who maybe are going through this or who are learning about in utero diagnosis what what can you say to them i just feel first and foremost knowing you're not alone it's not your fault that they're are, you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, you will see it, you will find it. But take care of you take care of your bodies, take care of your body. Because our body is an incredible vessel, right used to be here. But when we are moving through these things, it's almost impossible to connect in the ways we need to connect. So Find the things that ground you, find the things that center you and that create hope and create some forward movement, you know, moving through the some whatever inspiration, you know, and wherever you get that inspiration, cling on to that. But remember, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. There's always somebody to talk to and always there's always movement, but you will get through this and you're stronger than you would ever imagine you are (laughs) absolutely thank you for that and and sharing your experience and sharing about this diagnosis and you know how you and and your husband got through this i'm so glad that your daughter is doing well you're doing thank you us too very appreciative thank you so much you can connect with kate on instagram at kate stakem on facebook Kate Stakem, L-I-C-S-W, and her website, katestakem.com. And Kate also shared a website with me that she'd like to share with you as well. Tinyhero.org is a website where you can learn more about congenital diaphragmatic hernias and the work that that nonprofit is doing to help families. And please do join me on Instagram at momandmind. And if you didn't know yet, this podcast is also on YouTube where you can see our conversation. I'd be happy to have you join us on YouTube and on Instagram, and please do share and like these episodes so that more and more people can see them and know that they are not alone. It's really the best way to support this work. Thank you so much. Until next time. Please find the Mom and Mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com, where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at Mom and Mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) 
Well, you're aiming more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.